Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro, And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Stephen Galanis is the CEO of Cameo, the world's leading marketplace for personalized video shout-outs. He launched the company in 2016 with co-founders Martin Blenkow and Devin Townsend after seeing a personalized video message taped by a prominent NFL player congratulating a friend on the birth of his son. To date, the company has sold over 400,000 Cameos and seen over 20,000 athletes, actors, and influencers join the platform. He was named to Chicago NO's 2018 50 on fire list. He is a LinkedIn alum who previously worked as a trader on the board of the Chicago Board Options Exchange and founder of two film investment companies where he produced movies featuring such stars as Bruce Willis and Robert De Niro. Outside of work, he's an avid Chicago sports fan and serves on the board of directors for Habitat for Humanity Chicago. Stephen is a 2010 graduate of Duke University where he majored in history. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I'm I'm sitting here feeling um, I just feel honored and excited, and I feel high level, and I feel high end. <laughs> I do. Feel high end. I feel high end. How does one feel okay. high end, Esther? You tell me. You feel high end. <laughs> I didn't say it. I feel you don't high feel end. high end. I feel. I mean, I just feel really, you know, fortunate because we have this amazing platform that you know it's been a year now. I think it's been a year since we've launched the Honest Feel Guy podcast, and we've had some amazing, amazing people on our show, and we've talked to entrepreneurs and business owners who've had unconventional journeys to their success and to their passion. Um, I was up last night until one thirty in the morning, um, you know, reading about Cameo, and I just was astonished by how many phenomenal creative people, artists, musicians, regular folks, movie stars, <laughs> business people are on that platform. And I, I I was thinking to myself, how, where in the world did this concept come from? How did this happen? I mean, wow, it just came from some kind of magical bolt of energy lightning field that just like struck down from the sky and just hit, you know, the founder of this, of this company. And I thought, wow, he's going to be on our show. This is great. Um, the thing that I really love about Cameo is that it, it feels like the evolution of the autograph, right? Um, which is just, it seems like an obvious idea, but the best ideas seem obvious when they're executed. I want to know what the reaction was when you were first like, I'm going to get celebrities who are probably already busy and constantly getting approached. I'm going to get them to do just videos by request. Like, did people go, yeah, right, Charlie Sheen? Okay, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I think there was a lot of skepticism early. Um 
But the way that we actually had the idea, my co-founder Martin and I were driving in a car. Um, I was driving him back from downtown to O'Hare. He'd come in for the day for my grandmother's funeral, actually, flown in from L.A. And he was an NFL agent himself and a guy that was repping, like, the 15th best player on an NFL team. So not the superstar, but, you know, someone that, like, if you're a fan of the team, you would know. But unless you're a fan of that team, like, they're not – Nike's not giving them the endorsement, anything like that. And one of Martin's good buddies – Martin's my co-founder. One of his good buddies, Brandon – was working at Nike, and he was pretty high up in their marketing department. Uh, Brandon had just had his first son, and Martin got one of his players from his favorite team, the Seattle Seahawks, to congratulate Brandon on becoming a father in a video message. And the video is like 10 seconds and goes, hey, Brandon, it's Cassius Marsh from the Seahawks. Heard about your son, Maverick. If he gets your athletic ability, he'll be playing for the Seahawks one day. Go Hawks. And what kind of blew us away was that this guy who worked at Nike and worked with LeBron and Michael Jordan, and I think he had just finished a Pele commercial. So the biggest athletes on work in the world was so excited because this guy said his name and it was personalized and all that. We started thinking, if you're a Nike marketing executive and you're excited by Cassius Marsh, what would an average fan feel if they got one of these for the first time? And the first time we ever sold one, we saw this dad film his daughter's reaction to Cassius Marsh wishing her happy 16th birthday, and the daughter started crying. She was so happy, and at that point, you know, it didn't matter all the people that said no or it didn't matter all the people that said nobody will ever do this. The second we knew what that, what that little girl felt, I had absolute conviction that we could make, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions and hopefully billions of people feel that way in the future. I love that because, you know, when I was reading about you, um, I feel like the underlying thread is um, caring about other people and making sure that there is some equity and access for more than just a few, um, as I was reading about you. So can you talk a little bit about that um, and how that's driving the work that you're doing with Cameo? Yeah, I mean, I I think it starts from – I love when entrepreneurs try to solve a problem that for themselves or for their clients. And I think one thing that was interesting, you know, Martin, my co-founder, was trying to figure out how to get his guy Cassius Marsh off the field dollars, right? Because the average player in the NFL plays two and a half years. The average player will go broke five years after playing their last game. So it's so critically important that pro athletes maximize the amount of money that they can make. Now, that's not a problem that most people, like, lose much sleep over. Like, how do I make sure that NFL players make more money? But for the average professional athlete, they're going to make over 90% of their lifetime earnings before their 28th birthday. So imagine if all the money you were ever going to make, you made at 28, and then the rest of your life, you know, and you're 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 used to a standard of living, you know, you're used to everybody's coming at you for, you know, this and that. And that's why these guys all go broke. So for us, we were really trying to solve that problem on Martin's side. And then on the fan side, I can remember being a, you know, a kid. I was a diehard Cubs fan. I remember the 98 Cubs was like my favorite team all time. That was Sammy Sosa and Kerry Wood and 
the year Harry Carey died. That was a really special year. And I remember going to the Cubs games and trying to get Sammy Sosa or Mark Grace to sign something, and they were too big time and they wouldn't. But you'd sit there and <clears throat> you'd get Benny Agbayani or Scott Service, these guys that 20 years later I shouldn't remember their name, but because they did something nice for me one time, you're, you become a fan of them the rest of your life. And while those autographs that I got as a kid are up in my bedroom in Glenview on the wall somewhere, in the new age, if Cameo is the new autograph, then instead of your physical wall where the autograph would be, it's on your digital wall, on your social, it's on Instagram, it's on Twitter, and suddenly it's getting shared with everyone in the world that follows you. And if they retweet it or they like it, you know, there's an exponential increase in awareness for that talent every single time they do one. And we thought that was really powerful. That is so powerful, and it really speaks to something that is at the the center of of how we approach branding and marketing strategy, which is that you know emotion is so powerful, you know, and in this age where we're thrown so many different brand stories, um, being able to connect with people on an emotional level, whether it's through your personal brand as an athlete or an actor, like that goes far beyond, like it creates this permanent imprint. Um, and then just that being able to be shared like in perpetuity, like someone somewhere, great, great, great grandkid is going to be able to see a video that uh, a known celebrity or someone who's part of the American lexicon made directed towards their grandparent. And I just think into the future about archiving in the internet and what's going to happen next. Did you grow up around entrepreneurship? Like you mentioned that you were at LinkedIn before this. Um, How did you get from LinkedIn to being like, this is a thing we're going for? What what happened between that? Yeah, I absolutely grew up around entrepreneurship. And uh, in fact, I grew up not only around entrepreneurship, but around uh, photography and camera and motion picture and things like that. So my grandfather uh, founded the oldest continuing wedding studio in Chicago. It's called Furla Studios. Been around since 1945. And you know, I always kind of watched my. I was super close with him, and I always watched you know how he ran that business. Uh, my mom's brother runs that today, and then her other brother uh, is a you know really big movie producer in Hollywood. Um, his latest movie is The Irishman. It just came out this past weekend with uh, De Niro and Al Pacino and all those guys. And I think it's kind of interesting that, and again, this you can always like look back and say, like, oh, it's pretty cool that my family spent the last three generations like making money from the camera. Uh, but it's something that you know maybe was in my DNA. Um, I think as far as like entrepreneurship, I truthfully believe that you were born an entrepreneur. You're not made an entrepreneur. And I don't think any of my friends, if you were to go talk to my old teachers from kindergarten or uh, any of my classmates from college, I don't think any of them would be surprised that I ended up being an entrepreneur. Um, There's a personality test that I love making all my employees take. It's called 16personalities.com. And you can go on there and you find the type of personality that you are. And I'm one of the 3% of people on earth that has like the sick brain mutation that makes you an entrepreneur. And part of the thing about being an <laughs> I'm entrepreneur. sorry, wait, the sick brain mutation. It is sick. It's like you have a full-time job with benefits. You're like, no, 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 I got this. You're, they're going to take video. I mean, and I, people are going to love it. I have it. a sick brain. No, I tell. I was born with it. But more importantly, if you're born actually way. born an entrepreneur, you can never, I would argue, you can never be world-class working for somebody else. You actually have to be able to do your own thing. And um, why do you think that is? Oh my God, I love that you said that. Um, 
I think that as an entrepreneur, you always want the ball in your hand if you're going to be use a basketball analogy. I could think to my really early career, right after uh, graduating from college, um, I worked at the Board of Trade in Chicago for for four years and had um, linked up with a group of guys that I, I really liked. But I remember being so frustrated as a 21, 22, 23, 24-year-old where like my livelihood and my opportunity were limited by other people's decisions. And after that job, I really felt like I never wanted to put myself in a position again um, where I wasn't controlling the outcome. I have no problem losing if I'm the reason why we lose. But if we're going to win, like I want to be the reason why we won. And not in an ego way, but I want to make sure that there's nothing more painful than not being the reason why you lose and losing. And I never wanted to put myself in a position like that again. Uh, prior to uh, working at all, you know, outside of um, after college, I started a business while I was at Duke that was my first real taste of entrepreneurship. And I was just back in Durham this past weekend with my old business partner catching up. And, you know, shockingly, he runs a tech company as well that just closed their Series B and, you know, is preparing for a Series C. And again, I don't think if you asked anyone that went to Duke in the you know, four years above me or four years below me, if either Zach or I would be running tech companies at this point, um, nobody would be shocked at all because, you know, we were joking that Shooters 2, which was the bar that uh, we used to throw a lot of our parties at back then, which started our business, we kind of joked that it's the premier incubator in the southeastern United States at this point. (laughs) I mean, that's really amazing. I think that – I love what you're saying because when um, when we're out there talking to especially young women um, that are looking for their careers, you know, there is a conversation around how to build a network. And for women, it's a little bit different. Um, they have to um, develop different relationships and they have to get some experience understanding the business space. But I do think that um, women when they're in the workplace, are not necessarily encouraged, you know, to be entrepreneurial or to become entrepreneurs um, as readily and easily as men. And so I love that you're being very clear and intentional about, um, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, it's hard to be world class working for somebody else. I mean, you have to know that about yourself because we're always trying to figure out with other people, are you sure you want to be an entrepreneur? Um, because it's 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 not an easy path. It's really painful and it hurts a lot. It's not the glamour space of the results after you've worked for so many years. And speaking of so many years, I want to understand how did you build this so quickly? Because you haven't had Cameo for that long. It feels to me when you talk about having something happen overnight, when I look at the time it took you to build this, this seems like an overnight company. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, the first thing I want to address is is really, um, you know, you mentioned a lot of the women that you talk to, helping them develop their their fortitude potentially to to go and start their own business. Um, I, I'm going to take a really contrarian approach here. I actually don't think it's like harder for women to be entrepreneurs than men. Um, I look at you know. Um, just my own growing up, right? All the AP classes I were in, there were probably more women than men there. At Duke, there were more women that graduated than males. Um, I find that a lot of times, like my best my best girlfriends, they just a lot of times are not the same level of risk taker that, uh, that guys are. And I think it makes a lot of sense. There's reasons that, you know, I think 
guys just tend to be more risky. I think women tend to really try to get on a great career path, find mentors, all that type of stuff. But at least at every stop that I've been outside of trading where I literally never worked with any women at the Board of Trade, at LinkedIn, I was so amazed to see the things that Mike Gamson was doing to make sure that um, I remember when I got there, only 30% of the director level or higher uh, employees at LinkedIn were female. And Mike Gamson, who was the global head of sales at the time, had an initiative to in the next three years make that 50-50 gap. And there were so many amazing mentorship opportunities and pairing women, really talented young women with senior executives that I think a lot of companies are really are really doing their best to uh, to fix that. I know there's a lot written about um, the fact that like 95% of venture capital money or something goes to men versus women. I think it's and actually maybe 97. <laughs> it might be 97. I think that's yeah, I think that's right. 97. And I think one of the really tough things is it's actually not even an entrepreneur's fault. It's not the women's fault. It's not the men's fault. It's really a lack of diversity among venture capitalists that I think is the biggest problem. Um, you know, I intentionally uh, selected Nicole Quinn from Lightspeed to lead my Series A because I felt that, you know, having a diverse board was so important. And the other options I had, you know, didn't um, didn't allow me to put a, a woman on the board, for example. Mike Gamson, who, again, is my biggest mentor here, you know, somebody that's like really trying to make a difference in Chicago, he will not sit on a startup board unless there's a female on the board. Oh, my God. Let's just, I mean— Let's take a moment and we'll say insert thank you. applause thank you. here. We absolutely Mike. will. Um, so, and, and again, the, I think these things are are all really incredible. Um, and it's funny, my my girlfriend's in VC. She's at Tyson Ventures, so she invests in like Beyond Meat and mm-hmm. companies like that. And we've spent a lot of time talking about like why we think you know this is and. I think the most important thing, and again, I've also met so many talented entrepreneurs, and I think there's a lot of talented female entrepreneurs, but many of them might not be entering like the tech space, for example. And when you think of the pipeline, you know, to build a tech company, you have to have some type of technical co-founder. So the pipeline for this goes way back, like the percentage of women that are learning to to be coder, you know, to to code, right? If you go to any CS degree program at Illinois or Duke or Harvard or anywhere, you know, you're going to find that to be overwhelmingly male. And I think maybe there's something like really early on in in, in a pathway for education where people are, are kind of feeling like this is a guide thing versus a girl thing. And like, and I think that's changing. I think things like Lambda School and other code academies are really opening this up. I saw a tweet yesterday that talked about how during the Renaissance, only 5% of white males could read. And during that period, liter- that. literacy exploded. And today, only 0.05 of the world can code, right? So literally, we're going to be entering like a whole new Renaissance. And I think it really starts with ac- access to coding um, you know, at an early age, which again, when I was even in college, I, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I know that I was a history major. There were people that were um, doing, you know, computer science and stuff. But Zach Maritas, my my co-founder of my business in college, has a three-year-old daughter, and she's currently learning Chinese and going to be learning how to code soon, right? Yeah. So I think the next generation will be even more set up. But, you know, I've never – and again, I, I know as a white male, it's probably – you know, again, like something that isn't a popular thing for me to say, but I've never felt that there was 
like I had a different leg up than, you know, anybody else. I, I have many of the smartest people I knew I went to college with, the most talented people. They were women. You know, they were able to, you know, get great jobs. And, and I just found that for whatever reason, most of my male friends tended to be more entrepreneurial and risk-taking. And most of my women friends just didn't. Why are you on the board of directors for Habitat for Humanity Chicago? Um, so while I was at LinkedIn, there's a program called Board Lead, and they're specifically going to the tech companies, so going to Google, going to Facebook, going to LinkedIn, and trying to recruit emerging young leaders that they thought could bring a different perspective to the board. And, you know, very interestingly, um, or at least I think it's interesting, my my dad grew up on the west side. He's from Austin. And my grandfather came over from Greece as an immigrant. He was a carpenter that uh, came over and built houses and everything inside of him. So he'd build the whole house and all the and all the furniture. And we ended up, um, you know, my dad grew up right by Loretto Hospital in Austin on the west side. And one of the reasons that this board was really important to me um, while my grandfather was a master carpenter that could build houses and everything inside it, I can't I can can't even hang a picture today because <laughs> when my dad wanted to learn the trades, my grandfather wouldn't refuse to let him ever learn um, how to use the trades because he knew if he was working with his hands for the whole time, you know, all the time, he would never go and get his education. And you know, my dad went to UI, you know, UIC. Uh, was an accountant, you know, had a ex- very successful business career, and in one generation was really able to, you know, take our family out of poverty and and really give me the opportunity to do anything in the world that I wanted to do. And I think um, for me that was a really exciting opportunity to you know to kind of give back and to go back to the legacy of my grandfather. And that's you know every time I'm out there, like my dad and I did a, a habitat build last year during the winter. And, you know, I just feel like there's a connection to, like, my grandfather and my dad's side from that. And, you know, I think it's pretty uh, pretty special to have that opportunity. It's wonderful listening to you talk about how important your family has been to your career and your life and your perspective on the world. Um, do you have siblings? And was your mother an entrepreneur as well? Uh, yeah. Well, my mom is uh, – so she – had taken over the family photography business for a while, but then when she had me, she left and never went back to work. But she's an absolute powerhouse in the philanthropy world. And actually this Saturday we have a, a gala that she's one of the co-chairs of for Northwestern University's um, pink, uh, it's like their children's uh, cancer research division. So she's been very active in boards. So charity has always been really, really important, you know, to my family. Um, so I was always around that. And I think that that just starts. And um, I do have a brother. I've got a little brother. He's actually the one that came up with the name Cameo. Him <laughs> and my mom were the first two, two of the first three investors in the company. My dad ended up passing because you know oh. he's like that Microsoft stock. You know when <laughs> we had LinkedIn had just got bought by uh, Microsoft when I went to 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 leave, and I think my dad bought the same amount of stock in Microsoft the day that I left to just see what would do better, Microsoft stock or Cameo, and. Uh, you know, Microsoft's been on fire, but I think my brother and my mom made a pretty good investment. <laughs> that, is, that is so funny. What made you decide to study history? Um, 
so I'm Greek, uh, and specifically I'm Spartan. My dad was literally born in Sparta. So growing up, I was always hearing about, you know, how Greeks were the, the best civilization of all time. And you'd hear that I was always into Greek mythology and history was something really natural to me. My grandparents lived in Greece. So every summer, uh, my family would, you know, we'd go visit my grandparents in Sparta. And then my dad and mom would always take my brother and I to like one or two other countries per trip. So, you know, very early on, I, I went to Rome. I saw the Louvre. You know, I, I was just always fascinated by that. And a lot of kids, you know, they go to these museums and they couldn't be more bored. But for me, I just ate that up. And when I got to Duke, um, they didn't have a business program there, actually. So they really strongly encouraged the liberal arts education. Um, and they, they believe that business is something that, you know, you, you can just be taught. But like learning how to think, and learning how to think critically is so important. So um, I studied uh, a lot of really interesting stuff in college, specifically uh, my concentration ended up being around the slave trade, and I learned more about uh, you know, the Brazilian slave trade and just so many different things and what the cultural implications of that were in the American South and in and, and us building. So I just got to follow my passion and, and learn um, you know, so much, and, and to me, history is just something that's always lived with me. On Cameo, I'm starting to see pets and internet celebrities. And just with the rise of YouTube, with the rise of, you know, being able to publish video, you have the rise of internet stars. Um, And a lot of people would look and say um, platforms like YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all of these things are usurping traditional media and traditional television. So the landscape of stars looks a little different. Obviously, you have people like Chris Harrison on there, which The Bachelor is is quintessential mainstream television. But you also have a dog on here. What do you think Cameo is going to look like twenty years from now? Um, when you look at the way that the the way that media is being distributed is is changing, we always saw it. To be honest, my other co-founder Devin, so I mentioned Martin was an NFL agent. My other co-founder Devin was a classmate of mine from Duke, who was an engineer at Microsoft. After two years. Him and his best friend, uh, Cody, decided to quit their job. Cody was an engineer at Apple. And in 2014, they decided to travel Southeast Asia for a year. And while they were doing that, they started messing around on this little thing called Vine. And the two of them became world famous on Vine. Uh, Devin, my co-founder, had 980 million loops on Vine. And Cody, his best friend, had 3.6 billion loops on Vine. Today, Cody Co. is one of the biggest YouTubers in the world. So one of the things that they learned from that experience was they became more famous than they were rich. And one of the things that you know YouTube has enabled, 97% of all of the ad revenue on YouTube goes to the top 3% of creators. So there is literally every single day you know, this huge amount of people that have huge followings and, and their followers love that person more than anyone else in the world, potentially. But they might not have as many followers as Justin Bieber. Um, one of my favorite kind of parlor tricks I like to show when I'm 
talking to investors or people about Cameo is I tell them to pull up Instagram and look at Drake's profile. Champagne Poppy has 69 million followers. And if you look at how many likes he gets per picture, and do this now before Instagram takes the likes away this week, (laughs) he gets somewhere between 500,000 and probably 1.3 million likes per picture. If you go to David Dobrik, who's the number one most requested person in the world on Cameo that we don't have, David Dobrik has like 7 million followers and he gets 2 million likes per picture or more. So literally his engagement is magnitudes better than Champagne Poppy. And it's really those digital influencers, which is where we found product market fit first in our business. From a a building perspective, you had this idea. How did you figure out how you're going to start building it? Yeah, and I mean, in adding on to that question, um, when I think about um, our audience, there's always the question of, oh my gosh, how do I, where do I even start? How do I find a developer? Where am I going to get these people? I mean, you went to Duke, right? And you're establishing all these relationships at Duke, which have then translated into where you are today. And of course, you know, going back to your family that helps you even be open to establish those relationships. I mean, you had a whole you know, pipeline and journey of things to get you where you are today. But when you think about entrepreneurs that want to start, um, you would be amazed at how many people ask us, can you help me find a developer? I'm so not amazed you, because, what did you do? look, I'm not technical, so I was one of those people, right? Okay. And I always knew I wanted to start a tech company, but I couldn't build it. So I can't tell you how many other ideas I had over the years that I wasn't ever able to pursue. Um, ultimately, Jeff Weiner, who... The CEO of LinkedIn is one of my investors and one of my big mentors at this point. I remember when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, he came at it all hands and he said, and a lot of people were really frustrated, like, well, is this purchase a good thing? Are we going to all lose our jobs? What's going to happen? And he talked about trust equaling consistency over time. And I think that as an entrepreneur, every relationship you've ever made you know, if you are a good person and you're always doing right by people, then when you need to call in those chips and you need to ask that favor and you need to find somebody, they're going to be able to work with you. Devin, who we recruited as our co-founder because Martin and I weren't technical, you know, I rushed Devin into our fraternity. I've known him since he was 18 years old, right? And it was having a great relationship for with him for over 10 years that led him to trust me enough to drop what he was doing to come work on my idea, even when there was no real good compelling reason to say that this will work or not. So I would argue that every single day, you know, meeting people um, ultimately as a CEO, right? Like if someone's going to give you money or quit their job, they really have to be inspired by you and they have to trust you. So I would just believe that, you know, you ultimately find those people by over a very long period of time making good decisions and being a good person and building your own credibility up. So when you go to take the plunge and you find that idea that, you know, you literally can't stop thinking about, then you've, you've you know, spent, you've had a lifetime of developing from places that you work. If you're working at Google or you're working at 
Microsoft or even if you're not in tech, like find the one person that you know that knows more about computers than anything. And they probably know someone that knows more than them and network, go to. There's so many great events in the tech space right now. You know, I'm at one tonight where people that are passionate about entrepreneurship go and that might be where you find your co-founder. And I understand that not everybody, you know, is going to have like those same circles that I came out of. But I had that to work. Is key, though. But I had to work my ass off to get into those yep. circles, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, I think putting yourself in the right position is huge. But when you're in the room, you have to go and meet everybody, and you never know that one person that you talk to they could change your life. And I think you're also saying be patient. I mean, I feel like a lot of us um, that are in entrepreneurship, we just want things to happen very quickly. And even though. Your company kind of did happen quickly. It took a while before you were in position to make it work. Look, Cameo is a overnight success story three years in the making, right? <laughs> it's a, I, it's an idea that I was waiting 10 years to have. You know, these things aren't – and there's so many different ways to think about it, right? I think that no, even if you're working on a shitty idea in a small market that isn't going to work, you still learn so much that it's a, it's an at-bat that I could take. And if I could do one thing differently in my career, I would have spent less time trading than I did. I think like in one or two years, I learned everything that I needed to. And I wish I would have taken a, an at-bat you know, at 22, 23, 24, sometime in that realm once I'd learned the skills that I needed. For me, like – if I hadn't traded, I wouldn't have ended up at LinkedIn and, and being within tech, that was kind of a, the formative experience of my career. But even there, I was in sales at the Chicago office at LinkedIn. There's not a single engineer that works there. So it wasn't like I was, you know, at the lunch, at the lunch uh, cafeteria at Google and like started meeting some PMs and, you know, fell in love with them and, and, and like started riffing on product. Like I was just in sales. But when I had the idea, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it took us even uh, four months for Martin and I to even kind of recruit Devin full-time as a co-founder that could build it for us. I love that story. And one of the reasons why I enjoy running this podcast with Esther is that we spend a lot of time talking about culture. And I want to understand, um, so you're now, how many people do you have at Cameo now? Employees? Yes. 125. And where did you start? You started with just you, right? So how did you go from, you know, one to that many employees? And how do you maintain the passion that you're explaining and describing with people that work at your company. Because let me just say this. When I first met you, um, I was running a Google Digital Coaches workshop. And um, at that particular workshop, we didn't even have that many people show up. It was a last-minute workshop. But I walked around the office, which actually was your office at that point. You yep. took over the entire space. And I had this little <laughs> corner you know, in the, in, the, in the building. And I walked around and I saw people you know, hanging out, having fun, smiling, laughing, doggedly working hard, interested in what I had to say, were saying, what are you doing? What are you working on? What can, what can we do together? I just, I love the feeling I got. So how are you, how did you build that? And how did you, main, how are you maintaining it now? Um, I think that it starts with first having the right co-founders, right? That's huge. Um, 
I would argue that we had really good founder market fit. You hear people talk about product market fit all the time. And as I've learned more about building teams and, you know, have started like investing in some startups and spent a lot of time around venture capital, the best theory that I've heard on like what makes the best founding team is that you need these three people. Now they can all be in one person. It could be two people with three skill sets, but you need the hacker, the hustler, and the hipster. You need the hacker that can actually like get shit done and make it work. You need the hustler that's going to be out there, you know, wearing the t-shirt and recruiting people and building hype and all that stuff and, and, you know, moving from zero to one. And you need the hipster to, especially in a consumer product to like, like make sure that this is with the culture and it's, and it's cool. And, you know, Cameo is one of those things that like the line between being super cool and like really cheap or tacky is a very thin one. Right. And a lot of people to this day are like, Cameo's cringe. Like, I won't join Cameo because it's like diluting my brand, things like that. And, you know, we, we basically every day by getting more and more people like Snoop Dogg coming on for us or Charlie Sheen, those were like these moments where suddenly people are looking. It's like, oh man, Snoop's cool. He's doing this. I'll do it. Or Charlie Sheen's like a much bigger movie star, television star than I am. So I think like, or Kyrie Irving when he joined recently, like we're starting to get those people now um, that, you know, are the cultural tastemakers. And, and I think that that's really, that's a huge part of it. Um, as far as hiring, I've tried to hire like people with very specific traits. So one question I ask everyone is like, what are you reading right now? And if you can't answer that question for me, like you're not going to job a cameo. Um, I like to hire people that are intellectually curious, and that's why that group of people is probably hounding you, asking what you did and all that. I love to hire hungry and humble people. Uh, if you're a big ego person, you don't last a cameo. If you're someone that can't play well in the sandbox, you don't last a cameo. Um, I try to hire great managers and let them pick their own teams. If I'm going to hold a manager accountable for their results, then I need to be the one that actually helps them. Or I need to, they need to be the one to pick their team and to be entitled to do it. So there's been times where like I've actually watched our managers have high conviction about people that I knew were not going to work out, and I've let them hire them anyways just just so they could. How did you know? Sometimes you know. Sometimes you know. Sometimes maybe you worked with them previously or you've known them previously. And I, I've literally like there's ones that I would 100% veto. And I let people make their own mistakes because that's how they learn. But I mean aren't you in a position now though that you're growing and you're getting bigger? So I mean how do you really control that? Because we, we talk to other owners of companies that are scaling. The challenging part for them is the scale and maintaining – the psychological, spiritual, emotional culture of the brand. Yeah, I think you You've have got to. You've a lot of people now. Yeah, and we had 17 people this time last year. In fact, um, I just saw three of our employees just hit their one-year anniversary, and there's probably only 14 people that have worked at Cameo for a year. So we're still like a very, very young company. And I've heard another startup maxim is like the first 50 higher the next 500. So the more of those that you get right, the better. Um, you need to understand that you're going to make mistakes hiring. And sometimes people can be the right person at the right time. But then as the business gets to another phase, they're not. Probably the toughest one for me, my brother was the first employee at Cameo and really was so instrumental to us get, getting going. But when we got to 15 to 20 people, he just couldn't keep up anymore. And communicating was really hard for him. And, you know, it's also real hard working for your brother and his friends. And ultimately, like, he didn't last after a year. 
And you know, that's a really that's a really really tough that's a really tough thing. I live with them. You know, it, it's that's a toll. I'm on trying. Him. I'm trying not to laugh because I have three sons, and I try to imagine the three of them working together when yeah. they become men. And I, 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 I'm, I have a lot of gratitude that you actually went down that path and made it work for as long as you did. You know, and, and it's, great. And it, but he did some great work. And and for my brother, I have high conviction that he's like an unbelievable like zero to ten guy. Like you throw him into any startup, he's going to be a great operator. And just he learned so much to get it done. But like operating at this scale, where you need more subject matter experts, like as a startup grows like everybody's wearing less and less hats and they're getting more focused and you know we've screwed a lot of things up too like i think at some points like we i used to interview every person up until about 50 and then while we were fundraising um i had to take a step back because i was in san francisco and and we had growth plans that we needed to hit and you know our teams just were, were trying to get people in and you know they always say fire you know Hire slow, fire fast, and at Cameo, I think for a while we were we were hiring fast and firing slow. And because I took my hand off the ball, there were probably people that you know spent um, extra months at Cameo that should have been out of there. And when mediocrity is in your org, that's really tough. But I think to answer your question, I know this has been a long winded answer. I think it starts with having a mission that everybody's really aligned to. Um, our mission is to create the most personalized and authentic fan experiences on earth. Our mission is not to make talent more money, right? It's all about the fan for us. It's those reaction videos. That's why we get out of bed and it's having really strong cultural values and hiring and firing to those cultural values. Um, you know, roll out the red carpet is one of the values that we're really famous for at Cameo. And our feeling is if you walk into Cameo office or you meet a Cameo person, like you should have the best experience in your life. If you interview for a job at Cameo, you should be so excited that you can't stop thinking about, you know, that experience you had or that amazing thing. And, you know, on your first day of work, we tell everyone your first day of work at Cameo should be the best day of work you've ever had at your career. And every day should be better than that one. Cameo has a beautiful logo. The lettering and the typography is solid. It's easy to read from a distance. You're talking about brand voice that you're sharing not only with your employees, but also with your external partners and people that you bring onto the platform. Um, do you have training sessions when people first walk in and you talk about it? Are you leading it? And and also, by extension of this, you sound like you've been mentored by amazing people, which has be- made you become an amazing mentor. So are you also mentoring people that are in your company? And that's sort of a three-prong question. Yeah, the first prong, absolutely written on the walls. When people interview with us, they're finding around an interview, they get a deck of cards with their values on them. Our mission, like our mission and our values. They get the deck of cards so they know, you know, roll out the red carpet or fight for simplicity. Is it an actual deck of cards? Yeah, it's actually like a deck Playing of cards. Playing cards? It's, you know, it's like six things. It's our mission oh, gotcha. and then, you know, f- our five values. Um, but, you know, that's there. They're on the wall. Actually, I was just walking to the bathroom and somebody blew up and made these posters on the way to the bathroom and it's, you know, all of our, our values. So, you know, I think that's that's it. Secondly, mentors are so critical. At this point, the only people that I like to spend my time with are people that are, you know, people that are better than me and people that are more uh, successful in whatever they're doing. 
and it's funny, yesterday my brother is working on a startup with one of our current investors. Um, they want to start the CBD company and they were talking about deal structure and like how they're found, like their founding thing. And they were about to make so many mistakes that I had made previously. And it was so rewarding for me to be like, okay, here's what you're doing. Here's the mistake that you're going to make. There's literally a book called Slicing the Pie that was written by a, a Booth professor that just spells out how do you solve all this. I wish I had read that ahead of time because <laughs> it would have saved me like a lot of trouble. I, I have another company that I invested in recently where uh, the one co-founder went back to college and the other one is they they were 19, they dropped out of college and one decided to go back. And, you know, like these things happen, but they're all solved problems. And, you know, that's why I said I love curious people. I try to read a book a week and I try to always, if I'm on an airplane, like I'm reading, I don't, I refuse to get internet on the airplane. I either read or I sleep. And, you know, and I think just surrounding myself with the best people in the world that I can talk to that that are willing to talk to me, you know, that's been such a huge reason uh, for my personal growth. And as CEO, a lot of people are counting on me, you know, investors, our customers, our talent, the people that work for us. If I can't scale up, you know, then everybody's job is at risk. And as the largest shareholder in the company too, I have financial incentive to keep getting better every day. So having growth mindset, it was something they talked a lot about at LinkedIn. And we talk a lot about at Cameo, understanding that you can get better. You know, there's people, when I was trading, like everybody had a real fixed mindset there. You just kind of were what you were. And at LinkedIn, you know, I remember Mike Gamson, the first day I worked at LinkedIn, saying, welcome to LinkedIn. Two years from today, none of you will have the job we just hired you for. We know that, we support that, and we literally have the profile data to prove it. Your job in the next two years is to figure out what's your dream job. Our job is to make sure you get the skill sets you need to get your next job, whether that's here or somewhere else. All we ask of you is that when you're ready to leave, you recruit someone better than yourself to take your place. That was the culture at LinkedIn. I remember my parents picked me up from my first day at work and I was telling that story and it was so mind-blowing to me. And it turned out my very last day at LinkedIn was my exact two-year anniversary. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I wrote this kind of farewell letter, what they call a next play letter at LinkedIn to my team. And I got posted on LinkedIn and it went kind of viral among the company. And that's how Mike Amson ended up finding out that I was starting a company. And three months later, it called me out of the blue and, and gave us our first, you know, real angel money. As a person who's not a technical individual, yeah. um, but who had an idea and had an insight like light bulb, this could be huge. One of the things that I, I see in successful entrepreneurs, just whether they have five people working for them or they have a hundred something people working for them, they're like um, a maestro. Like they can orchestrate and coordinate things. But when you have something that is a billion dollar idea, speaking of slicing the pie, people find it hard. How many co-founders do you have? And did you have any reservations about, you know, slicing up pieces of your company? Like, how did you navigate that thought process? Because Ginger and I talk a lot about how people have a great idea, they're not technical, but they don't want to give any part of 
the meat and potatoes. So my uncle always likes to say it's better to have part of something than all and nothing. Mm. And I think that's some of the most true business advice ever. Um, I do think that almost every business that I've been involved with, you know, like I enter in at a certain deal and then I've probably outperformed, you know, my my equity stake versus my partners and that can lead to reservation. But I think at the end of the day, it's like if you couldn't get this group of people to can to start, like Cameo could have been dead so many times before <clears throat> we're ever sitting, you know, here in front of a microphone. And one of my superpowers, I think, as a founder is being the person that's the glue that can kind of hold everybody together. So I think that's really critical. The other thing I'll mention, and I was not smart enough to figure this out. Actually, Devin, my technical co-founder was, there's so much tech out there that's just pre-built. For example, the first version of Cameo was basically a Google Sheet. And when we got an order, we would email the talent and we would ask them to record a video on their iPhone and email it back to us. We didn't have to build an app. In fact, there's another entrepreneur that I know that had been working on our problem for three years prior and still hasn't launched the app because they've been iterating and trying to make it perfect. Like, just get it out there, ship, and then iterate. And even if your your product should embarrass you and if it doesn't, you waited too long to ship it. Like, we ship crap every day. And there was a, a tweet I saw, Stuart Butterfield from Slack said maybe in 2015, he goes, our product sucks, but I love you all. <laughs> right? Like, like Slack sucks, but I love you guys. And the kids are going well, get a fly. Not a cloud in the sky. Will I ever see the space rocket fly? You know, I want to talk a little bit about Cameo itself. Um, so I was, I spent, you know, time last night. It was so much fun. I had a ball. Um, did you buy any? I actually did. I bought you. Great. <laughs> did you not? Ten get bucks, a, did you bucks. not get an alert? I have. No, I have wait. You went up from ten dollars. You're now one thousand forty credits. Oh, uh, coin. That's so the coin 14. system. It's it's because <laughs> talk a, about that. That well, whole Apple's taking takes thirty percent off the top. So cameos are more expensive on iOS than they are on web. So little trick, go buy them on the web. For but at now. least you're not fifty thousand credits. I mean, somebody. I'm like. <laughs> You're just not worth it, Stephen. And, and it's really, it's really our our credits are actually in pennies. So when it's like so ten thousand pennies or whatever thousand pennies, that's it's pennies. Is is how it's denominated. So thinking about the whole app itself, um, I want to ask you about the celebrity side. Um, how are you? You talked earlier about. There's a fine line, you know, with with you know the vibe of Cameo, but I love the diversity on the platform. You know, there's some super 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 fancy people, and there's some super not fancy people, but they all are fun, and they all have their own individual messages. Do they just put it out there, and they can like you just take it, or do you have a curation process, or or how do you do you say no to anybody, or do you say yes to everybody? What do you we- do there? have standards as far as the minimum amount of followers that you need to join Cameo. Traditionally, it had been around 20,000 followers on Instagram. Um, We have, like, there might be cases where if you're, like, a Chicago Bears player and you have less, like, or you're a person of note in some way, but uh, you're maybe not on Instagram, or we'll, we'll make exceptions, but that's been traditionally a pretty good benchmark. Um, We 
have three rules on the platform, no nudity, no inciting violence, and no hate speech. We will let anyone in the world on Cameo, but if you violate our terms on Cameo, then we will take you off Cameo. So for us, we believe that Cameo should be a platform where anyone with fans can go to interact with their fans, but those are our rules and um, you know, but that it's been interesting, right? Because I remember one of the first cases to pop up in our office that was controversial was when the first porn stars started joining. And in the office, like a lot of the women in the office were really uncomfortable with that. But at the end of the day, it was like, hey, if they can't be naked, why is that different than any other actress? Like just because of how they got famous. And then where do you draw the line? If someone posed for Playboy one time, like are they not allowed? So for us – we really like this and, you know, we found that to be like a good vertical for us, even though they're not naked and that's maybe what they're famous for. I mean, there's a lot of verticals in there. And so that that also leads me to ask, um, you know, are you – and you don't have to give away your trade secrets, but I see so many iterations of Cameo and how it can translate into so many different places. Um, are you just going to keep going? I mean, where are you going to draw the line? Are you going to draw any lines? Maybe you're saying I'm not drawing any lines. We're just going to let this go and see how far it goes. Well, we think this is the top of the first inning of a really massive market opportunity. We believe there's 5 million people globally that can be on Cameo in the current form, and we have 20,000. So one-third of 1% of our total addressable market. Um, 30% of our business is coming from abroad already. So next week I'm going to India. I was in Tokyo the week before. Um, We're trying to make sure that we're right now basically foreign customers are buying U.S. talent. Let's try to make sure that we have the foreign talent on that they would want as well as as kind of like a next step. So that's uh, really been top of mind for us. And then, um, you know, we're really with Cameo, we're trying to build a marketplace where for X amount of money, you can do Y activity with Z person. So the personalized video shout-out is the first Y activity of an infinite amount of Y activities that we hope we can offer. And we believe that if we can basically curate the world's largest network of talent, there's a ton of different things that fans can do in furthering our mission. There's a lot that can be done on Cameo. People can um, quit their jobs. You can do birthday shout out. There's a whole host of things. But from a business perspective, how do you foresee this being used for, for businesses? Yeah, the business use case is interesting. We created this to be primarily a B2C platform, and that will always be our like our mission is not to help businesses, you know, whatever, use influencer marketing. Uh, but that said, we out of all the requests that come on the platform, about 5% get declined. So the talent can say yes or no to anything. Of the declined requests, we looked into it and found that over half of them were businesses trying to get Charlie Sheen to give them a shout out or Snoop Dogg to endorse their CBD oil or whatever. So when we went back to our talent, we talked to them and we found that the talent would be willing to do them and create these mini commercials but they just wanted to charge more money for it, and they wanted to limit the duration of that. So what we've recently launched for our top 100 talent is the ability when you go and book on the booking form, they'll say, book for me, for someone else, or for my business. And if you click my business, they've set their own business price. And the terms, I think, are like 90 days the business can use it and put it on Instagram. And basically, we're helping people create you know, 
commercials for a fraction of the cost that they were and finding stars that are really aligned with their own brand. And I think it's going to be really powerful. For example, um, if you know you wanted a book like a Chicago personality, like Showbiz Shelley, for example, is on Cameo, and you wanted to book her to say that the coffee shop downstairs is the best coffee in Chicago, like that's something that would be impactful to the followers of that brand on their own Instagram or Facebook pages. And because we're sitting in the middle of, of both business and customers and talent, you know, we're going to help them make those experiences. Because of the way that the internet's evolving and the platforms that, that exist, you know, like TikTok and Instagram stories and things like that, those aren't things that people know how to use a lot. But there are a, an emerging class of celebrities that are celebrity creators. Uh, do you foresee that being something that that feeds into Cameo's pipeline as far as being able to have creators make whatever is in their style of creation for for video? It already is our pipeline, oh, really? right? Like, uh when I mentioned that there's 5 million people on earth that could make Cameo, we believe that number is going to double because every day TikTok and Instagram and YouTube are just manufacturing more famous people. There's somebody that could have one viral video and then all of a sudden they become talent on Cameo. Um, Tay Zonda is probably like one of the most you know famous early Cameo talent. He did that song Purple Rain 10 years ago and that's still – you know. That's still like buzzworthy for him. Uh, we had this guy Bagel Boss come on this year that uh, blew up and was like a viral sensation, and all of a sudden he came on and and you know did really really well on the platform. So you look at like Justin Bieber, probably the biggest star in the world right now. He came up from YouTube, right? He was just a kid singing in his bedroom. So I believe that YouTube and TikTok. And talking to my friend Cody, who is one of the biggest YouTubers in the world, one thing that I really learned from him was he had originally moved to L.A. to become an actor. And he'd go in every one of these open casting and try to get a role, but he was always too short or he didn't mix with that co-star or one person loved him and somebody else. So Hollywood kept saying no, no, no. But you know what? In the YouTube age, someone like Cody could just go on and start – recording his own content and people vote with their pocketbooks, right? They subscribe, they buy his merch, they follow him. And, you know, now he's one of the biggest YouTubers on earth. So I think that, that you're really seeing the, the center of power in Hollywood. Like the biggest stars that we get asked for are not Justin Bieber and they're not Drake and they're not The Rock. It's people like Casey Neistat and David Dobrik and, you know, these others that mainstream America still doesn't even know about yet. I feel like Cameo brings an emotional response to me. Um, I cry and I laugh and I get angry. Everything's happening as I'm looking through the, the, the app, right? I'm, I'm scrolling all night long and it just was a wonderful journey going through what's going on here. I mean, you have YouTubers, musicians, actors, reality TV people, athletes, real housewives, comedians, um, things for charity, drag queens, models, politics, family. There's just so much to choose from. But I'm also looking at this. From the creator side saying, my gosh, you know, why aren't you a talent agency? I mean, you could be repping these people and making them money. And 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 who needs United Artists Rep anymore? I mean, no offense. I love United Artists Rep. They've been around forever, their legacy. But um, this is a new model to help um, 
people make money while they sleep. Our mission is to create the most personalized and authentic fan experiences on earth. You know, if when we decide what to do and where to go, it really is always about going back to that mission and understanding, like, is this aligned with our North Star? If that in some future day helped us further our mission, that's something that you know, maybe we would consider. But truthfully, you know, I don't want to be negotiating NFL players' contracts or like <laughs> any of that. It's, it's not that we couldn't do that. It's just not. We think that this opportunity is so much bigger and so much better. And, you know, in Hollywood, we got laughed out of every agency for two, two three years. And then suddenly now people are realizing like, whoa, this is actually something – and now a lot of the agencies are coming to us and asking, hey, how can we work together? So we're, we've seen a huge shift over the last couple of years. Wow, that is, that's amazing. And I, I imagine that that shift will continue to happen. What's one last word of advice that you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur that wants to tackle a problem that seems as, as much of a moonshot as something that you've, you've brought to fruition? When I decided, um, so when I first had the idea for a cameo with Martin, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I remember the the real huge moment for me was sitting in a hot tub in Nicaragua with a bunch of my buddies from LinkedIn. And I remember my buddy Will Hearn, who's the guy I worked with, and Will goes, Stephen, this and, and at the time all the guys at LinkedIn, everybody was excited. I'm gonna run sales, I'm gonna run marketing, we're all gonna stay at our desk at LinkedIn and build this billion dollar company together. But I remember Will Hearn asking me this question, he goes, Steven. This idea is too big. Somebody's going to build this and become a billionaire. If somebody else builds it and became a billionaire and you're still working at LinkedIn, could you live with yourself? And nobody had ever asked me that before, but the answer was so clearly no that I never went back to work. And you know, to this day, I tell every aspiring entrepreneur, if you don't feel that, if you're going to tackle a problem where you'd be okay with somebody else winning, then this is too hard and it's not worth it. So only tackle a problem that you truthfully could answer that question, no, I couldn't live with myself. Stephen, thank you so much for your honesty, your insight, and your expertise. This has been a really amazing episode. I loved it. I love, There's so many love, gems love here. I'm going to go back and listen to it. I'm like, I, do. I mean, it was just so breathtaking. You are a breathtaking entrepreneur. I mean, you just... The whole time I'm like lifting off my seat like a rocket listening to you talk about your passion. And I, I, you know, I have a lot of passion for what I do too. So I'm just excited about this. So thank you so much for coming to talk with us on the Onsville Guide podcast. I'm Esther Coro. And I'm Ginger Birkenbiel. And we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbiel and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. 